Amen. Please be seated. And please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 17. We continue with Paul and Silas and Timothy. Luke is gone now from this part of the trip, probably still at Philippi, on the second great missionary journey of Paul. I have a map for you. I know it's small, but if you squint, you can see the loop, uh, the oval that they take across from where they began Jerusalem Council up to Antioch and then across to the west. And the Holy Spirit directed them when they were in Galatia that they should continue westward to Macedonia, modern-day Greece, as you see there on the map. And as they moved across to Philippi, that's where we left Paul and Silas. They had just been beaten uh, unjustly. Uh, They were Roman citizens. They should have never received the beating they received. But the Lord used that to bring people uh, to faith in Christ and then to establish the church, give them a little bit of a legal cover for a while. No doubt the officials were worried about um, the after effects of punishing Roman citizens like they did. So this gave some time for that infant church to grow into some adolescence. And that's what happened at Philippi. Philippi becomes a very important church in the early church. And there are several important members there. Lydia is one such member that we were introduced to. Uh, Many, many uh, great reports from Philippi over the course of the New Testament era and then afterwards. But they leave Philippi to move south and west to Thessalonica. Thessalonica is a very pivotal city in Greece. It was the capital at this time. Um, The inhabitants uh, numbered almost a quarter million. It was about 100 miles from Philippi, so it took a few days to get there. And we pick up in the text. And in the text, we'll see the pattern repeat itself, how these trips unfold with Paul leading. Then we'll also look at a particular aspect of the teaching that Paul brings here. It's not new, but it's very interesting to note what he keys on when he preaches in Thessalonica. Here now as I read God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word, Acts 17. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, "'This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ.'" And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we once again come asking for your understanding as we study your word this hour. 
Please encourage us with this history of your work in the early church. Grant us insights to your word that strengthens our faith in Christ. Please give us clarity about the timeless mission that you call your church to, and it's especially renew our appreciation for the suffering, for the death, and the resurrection of Christ as Paul preached here. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia. Thessalonica is another pronunciation. Today, it's called Thessaloniki or Saloniki. Uh, It is still a very large city, the second biggest in Greece. It was established in 315 B.C., which if you remember your history, that's around the time of Alexander the Great. It was one of his general's wife for whom it is named. That was a common practice, and it stood for that 300 years before we have our episode today. A great large city near the coast, near the port, and three rivers came through and converged, making it a hub of all sorts. It was also along the Ignatian Highway, which you may be familiar with from, again, your study of history, that moved all the way around. It was a perfect, a perfect logical place for Paul and company to follow. They just went along the Ignatian Way and came to Thessalonica after a few days' journey from Philippi. Unlike Philippi, Thessalonica had a Jewish synagogue, which meant an immediate place of contact with people who would at least be initially receptive to the teaching that Paul had from Scripture. It would then work its way out from there. Really, what we have in this episode, and I hope you're noticing by now, is a a common apostolic mission pattern. Uh, It included preaching the gospel. There would be a positive and a negative response. There would be persecution that usually would come of some sort. But the infant church would be established, usually because of the persecution in some way, and then they would move on to the next town. So in our time this morning, let's note the pattern more fully as we walk through the passage. Then I would like us to consider specifically Paul's teaching and preaching, the emphasis he has on the suffering and death of Christ, and especially the resurrection. Why would that be so strategic? Why is that so important to bring up in this mission especially? Let's look now at the pattern that unfolds when we walk through this episode. Verse 1, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. So it's a few days' journey. They only stopped at those other places, which were also along the Ignatian Way. They came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. We've seen this is the first place Paul goes to speak and preach. As it says in verse 2, Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So for three weeks, it doesn't say if they were spread out, by the way, because we know from the letters of the Thessalonian, to the Thessalonians, they were there for several months. But on three specific Lord's days, you might say, or Sabbath days for them, he would go in and have dialogue with those who were there attending, and no doubt the crowds kept building. What did he do? On three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now, you remember that Paul's strategy was to speak to the Jews first, and it really was a strategy. It wasn't so much that they had a higher priority. It just made the most sense. This is why in Romans 1, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greeks, to the Greeks. So, by going where people would have understood the background from the Old Testament, 
he would immediately establish a dialogue that others would listen to. It made the most sense to go first to the Jews and then extend to the Greeks. Now, there is some scriptural priority in that the Jews had been the stewards of the scriptures. The 39 books of the Old Testament, those are the scriptures that he's referring to. The New Testament books had not yet begun. Maybe the Gospel of Mark was starting to be in circulation. Remember, Mark left them earlier. Many scholars think that one of the things he did initially was write his annal of the life of Christ, his gospel. Well, here we are in the synagogue. The scriptures he has to reason with are the Old Testaments and the scrolls, and his knowledge of it would have captured people. So he starts first with the Jews. They have this stewardship. In fact, that's how it works in God's un- unraveling of the gospel message. He starts first with the Jewish people, promising them the Messiah to come. And then by plan and covenant, the world would, would come to appreciate or members of all tribes and tongues would come to appreciate the Messiah. So first the Jews receive it, and then the Greeks. And this is the pattern that he follows even here. First to the Jew, and then to the Greek. It says in verse 2, he went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. This would be, of course, the Old Testament. What would he do with the Old Testament? What would he do in his reasoning? Notice verse 3. Explaining and proving explaining what it means in order to prove, to show or to manifest what? That it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Now, we'll see in a moment when we focus on this message why this was an important strategy or an important approach. There was a a mass misunderstanding of who the Messiah was and what he would do on the part of the Jews initially. So, he takes the Old Testament, explains improves that Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, had to die, had to suffer, and would be raised again. The pattern for presentation, you notice, he goes to a synagogue, gets an audience, and proves that Jesus is the Christ, proclaims Jesus as Christ. Christ means anointed one in Greek. It's the, the same term used for Messiah in the, old, in the Hebrew language. Christ and Messiah mean the same thing, to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. He uses the Old Testament to show this, and specifically how he must die and rise again. He goes to this, on this visit preaching this message, and what is the response? Verse 4, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Now, some of them is mostly, most likely a reference to the larger portion of the group, which would have been Jewish listeners in the synagogue. Some of those were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, a way of saying, They agreed with his message. They became Christians. It goes on, as did a great many of the devout Greeks. This probably refers to those Greeks or Gentiles who had come to listen to the Jewish message, were very interested in what the Scriptures of the Old Testament said, probably visited synagogue on a regular basis, maybe proselytes to Judaism. They were devout in that they believed in God. Remember, Lydia was a devout woman just looking for that answer, and they were looking for the answer. And when Paul shows it from the Old Testament, they get it. And a great number of them are converted. They don't come with the, humanly speaking, the baggage that the Jews do with what this would mean if they would accept Christ as Savior. For the Gentiles, it made perfect sense. Yeah, this is the story of Jesus in the Old Testament, and Paul's just showing us how Jesus fulfills it all. And a great many of the Greeks, devout Greeks, came to Christ. And not only them, not a few of the leading women In Greek culture, the women were 
trendsetters as it related to the cultural movements. And for a great many of these leading women of the culture to also believe would make a powerful momentum go in the way of the church. All of this happens as he opens up the Scriptures, Paul opens them up, shows how the Old Testament points to Christ, and that Jesus, whom they were testifying to, is the Messiah. And many people came and believed. So you have positive responses. They go to a place, they preach Christ, there are responses. Many of them are positive. Now before we go further, I want you to think in terms of our mission teams. What's a good approach to missions? The tried and true method is go where you have some connecting points, some points of contact with people, develop relationships, and as God opens up opportunity, bring the gospel, preach the gospel. And this is a great method. In the first century, these are places that were largely without witness of Christ. There were some Christians there that probably had moved there from Jerusalem, and it's not like they'd never heard of who Christ is. However, Paul brings the gospel really afresh for the first time. And so new converts come, and so he's really frontline, goes right into the synagogue, immediately has discussion, people come to Christ, and the church starts. But when we go to, when we go to places that have the witness of Christ there, it may be dimmed or maybe quieter or not right in the area we're at, but people are aware of it, like in Juarez or in the Omaha Nation, it's nice to come up with contact points that are truly helpful in shows of Christ's love. They're genuine, whether we had a chance to proclaim the gospel or not like work projects or helping with a building or helping with some other health need someone might have. Any number of things that we might have connect points with other people. And then in time, as God gives opportunity to proclaim the message of Christ or help a ministry like a church that exists there by helping with supporting aspects of their ministry so they can be uninhibited about their preaching of the gospel in their locale. It's a tested and true and timeless method of going somewhere else to share Christ, find the connect point, and meet people there. But keep in mind, the message is clear. The message is Christ as Savior. Now, there's also another reaction, as you are aware of. Look at verse 5. But the Jews were jealous. This is now a statement um, capturing the bulk of the people who are watching this happen, we might say. Or it could be specifically, like we see so often, some leading Jewish leaders, and we're talking Jewish uh, figures, and we mean by that cultural leaders more than religious ones. Judaism meant more than a religion. It was a culture within a culture, and that's how they came to be known. And they were often difficult in the culture they lived in because they so strived to keep their, their, their distinction from everyone else and let everyone know it. And so they were really trying to guard this. And for someone else to come in and shake up that cultural distinctive, that bothered them, that that caused unrest. And so we have the Jews jealous, jealous of this change-up of the Jewish structure and the attention that Paul, who was this famous Jew of old, now drawing attention to himself and to the message that he is preaching. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So these men who were upset with what was happening by Paul's mission, they rabble-roused. That's where the word, the phrase uh, comes from, or at least it's associated here. Notice, wicked men of the, out of the rabble. Rabble means those who were just loafing around, those who were not working. They were just sitting around, spending their time in the city square, most likely. They were literally loafers. And these men who didn't like what Paul and Silas were doing went to that rabble, the loafers, 
and they rouse them. That's what rabble rousing means. People often say rebel rousing because they think that's what it is. They incited a rebellion. That's not the right word. It's rabble rousers, and this is where it's used. And that's what they did. They stirred them up. These guys didn't have interest otherwise, but they saw a cause, you know, and uh, hey, well, we could do that. That's, that's more fun than what we're doing. So they jump on board, and they, and they, in mob mentality, get after Paul and Silas, but they can't find him. But they know that Paul and Silas and whoever else were with them were staying with Jason, who was a local, who had some means. He had a house big enough to have guests. He also had money to pay a fine or a bribe. So they go after Jason as a result, trying to shut down the message that was being given. You know, as it relates to why they were upset, the Jews had a mission here, and it again was not religious. It was socio-political. The Jews in this day and in this era, they preached Israel. They preached nationalism. That's what excited them, to see Israel become great again. That's what they wanted. That's what they promoted. And so if someone comes in to undercut Jewish custom or culture, they don't like that. That's a shakeup that they don't want. That will, that will deter their mission to make Israel a great nation again out of the nations. So they were at odds with what Paul and Silas were doing. The Christians preached Christ. The Jews were preaching Israel. The immediate and passionate following that Paul and company garnered angered the Jewish leadership especially the leaders of the synagogue. So out of this, they have a political problem with Paul's message. They have a social problem with Paul's message and preaching. They had a cultural problem with what Paul was proclaiming. They had a religious problem. It may not have been top of the order, but it was something that was striking at their religion for sure. They also had an economic problem with Paul's message. If people moved away from their form of Judaism, it would certainly mean a loss of profits and livelihood for many of them who are leading. They were so passionate to guard their customs and their traditions that they thought nothing of using violence to run them out of Thessalonica. And as we saw in the case of Jesus and with the Sanhedrin with Peter, they were not above getting the Gentile authorities in on crushing whatever was happening with this burgeoning church. When they couldn't immediately locate Paul and Silas, look what happens. Verse 5, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. They thought they were in the house. But verse 6, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Now, what are the chances that the city authorities, the Gentile authorities, would know much of the quite frankly, very small missionary journey that Paul had already been on. Uh, This is an embellishment on their part to get the attention of the civil authorities. Certainly they had heard something of what was happening, but again, it was just a short trip they were on before, and they had only been to Philippi at this point. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason, one of their own, has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another King Jesus Sound like a similar accusation to get the civil authorities stirred up over them? Of course, the charges were false. Only the beginning of the second missionary journey. One could hardly say that they, at this point, had turned the world upside down. In fact, Christianity as a forceful movement didn't really see much traction until quite a bit later, like the 4th century, when Constantine made Christianity legal and even sanctioned it. That certainly stirred up the world at that time, no question. But for here, it would be more like the Jewish world was starting to be turned upside down 
They knew this from Philippi, probably knew about it from Jerusalem and Antioch, and now they are bringing this to the light of the civil authorities and trying to say that they were even try, these men were even trying to undercut the civil authority, the Roman authorities. What do they do? Second part of verse 6, they drag Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting and declaring what these men had supposedly done, these false charges. Really another way to translate turning the world upside down, uh, disturb or upset, stirred up. These are all synonymous terms that could have been used. They were causing a social upheaval. This made people uncomfortable. They're being accused of disturbing the established social order. That's really what it was about. Uh, The ministry of the apostles wasn't so much transforming society yet at this point in some way, but it was causing the Jews to rethink everything, especially as the Gentiles were coming to Christ in considerable numbers. What would this mean? Things would be different. We can't have this. So these rabble-rousers were simply trying to keep the Jewish social order by recruiting a mob to resist Paul and Silas and do whatever it took to stop them. Verse 7, Jason has received them. They're acting against the decrees of Caesar. Now they go after the man Jason. Verse 8, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed. Of course they were. All these rabble-rousers, when they heard these things, they were disturbed. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. So Jason is put on notice. Um, you could count this a bit of a, a, as a bail, but it could be that they took money as a deposit saying, if you, don't, if you continue to house them, we're keeping this. Or as a way to tell Jason, you need to get rid of them. Hard to say exactly. It could just be blackmail. Uh, wouldn't be the first time we'd see this, especially in this part of the world in the first century. They intended to strike a paralyzing fear in Jason and anyone else who tried to harbor Paul and Silas. Seeing that it was too dangerous for Paul and Silas, I don't think that they moved them along because of that threat, but rather it just was too dangerous at this point. They had done what they needed to do, the pattern. They got to the city, went to a place of common contact, preached Christ very clearly, positive responses, negative responses, persecution, people come to Christ, The infant church is born, and they move to the next place. Verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. What did they do when they got to Berea? Maybe lay low a little bit, you know, get their breath. When they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. This is their pattern as we see it unfold. Now, I want to take some time, and the time we have remaining, to note the particular message. Please note it with me that Paul gives about Christ in this context. It was particularly an emphasis on his suffering and his resurrection. This is important because he has to retrain the thinking about Old Testament scriptures, the thinking of the audience, to understand what the Old Testament was actually saying about Messiah. They had a misunderstanding. There was a large part of the problem that, uh, that held up the Jews from initially receiving Christ, whereas you see the Gentiles with no such baggage, it just comes together for them quicker. As much of a blessing as it would be to have the Old Testament for so long, if you had bad teaching about it for so long, which they did, they were left in a place of disadvantage when the gospel actually came. Knowing full well it's the Holy Spirit who gives us eyes to see that which is spiritual. But as you observe it on the human level, you can recognize where these roadblocks would come in for the Jews. There were basically two different ideas that the Jews had in the first century about the Old Testament's teaching on Messiah. The first view, everywhere it seems to be speaking of Messiah, like the book of Isaiah, it's actually speaking not of a person, but of the nation of Israel. 
So Israel would suffer. Israel would be under the the weight and wrath of God. But eventually God would restore Israel and put them in a place of prominence. They would look in a very, very, uh, you might say, even allegorical way or a a metaphorical way that the Old Testament prophetic or messianic passages were really about the nation of Israel. They were waiting for their real-time restoration to prominence in the world. It was very physical to them. That's how many Jews thought in the first century. Then the other view, no, he's a person like King David, though. He'll be a liberator. He's going to liberate Israel and lead them to national prominence again. The spiritual view was, was hardly on the radar anymore. It was just about what God would do for them in the Messianic age, either under a Messiah or a Messianic period that would restore them to national prominence, world prominence. That's, those are the prevailing views. Jesus doesn't fit this, does he? But that's not what the Old Testament teaches, and that's what Paul will unpack for them, no doubt. You know, I was thinking about this view of the Jews, and to put it into modern perspective, it really struck me. I was watching an interview not too long ago with probably the most famous Orthodox Jew right now, Ben Shapiro. He has a show, and he has a political commentary on just about everything. He comments on everything, not just political stuff. But he had two interviews that I was just uh, riveted by. The first one was with John MacArthur from Grace Church out in California. It was a, it was a riveting interview um, between these two men. And Shapiro, unlike so many other commentators, lets the person just tell what they believe. He doesn't seem threatened by it. He just lets them tell. And if you let MacArthur tell, he's going to tell. And so from Isaiah 53, he does a 10-minute exposition of Isaiah 53 that's masterful about how Jesus has to be the Messiah. At the end of it, he didn't agree. Shapiro didn't agree. And I thought, how could you not just hear that, Ben? Did you not hear what he said? Then a few months later, William Lane Craig does another, an interview with Shapiro as well. And Craig is more of a, a Christian apologist. MacArthur is an expositor of Scripture. Craig is really a philosophical expert about why Christianity makes sense, and he argues from the Scripture. He spent a lot of time on the resurrection. It was masterful. Both are worth your listening to. And again, Shapiro gives an answer after it seems so obvious to me that Craig's right on about what the Bible says in the Old Testament, and Shapiro doesn't agree. Listen to Shapiro's argument, and this would be the mindset of the first century, hence Orthodox Jews. They call themselves that because they tie in to Judaism from this era that we're looking at. This is what Shapiro says. My view of Jesus is that Jesus was in all likelihood an Orthodox Jew, like himself, who tried to lead a political revolt, kind of like himself, against the Romans, and he got crucified for his trouble. That's who Jesus is. Listen to what else he says. The concept of Messiah in Christianity is very different from the concept of Messiah in Judaism, Shapiro says. The Messiah in Judaism is essentially a political figure. The Messiah in Judaism is a guy who comes along and restores the Davidic monarchy and brings the Jews back to Israel and restores Jews to practice. The concept of Messiah as an actual embodiment of God in Judaism is anathema. Jews don't believe that God takes human form. They don't believe that God takes physical form. Take his view, and you could put it back at the first century. There's no mention of the presence of our sin and the need for forgiveness. That's not even an equation. You just hope for that by the rites and rituals you do. But really what Judaism is about is, is world position, about being strong and restored as a nation, the nation of God. That's the mindset most Jews had when Jesus came. They don't understand the Old Testament, so Paul takes the Old Testament and shows them how it is so. You can recognize how it is that so many would come to faith in him, in Christ, because of this exposition from an expert on the Old Testament himself, 
Paul, verse 2, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to what? To suffer and to rise from the dead. To suffer and rise from the dead. He'd been talking about the death of Christ because it was so well known in the world even at that time. But he is really emphasizing in every one of his sermons and acts the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus being raised from the dead was a huge stumbling block to everyone who was Jewish. How could a Messiah, a messianic figure, go down in defeat like this and be killed? And then be raised again? How can someone be raised from the dead? If this is true, then certainly Jesus must be who he says he is. If he was raised again and did such a thing, how could he be bad or crazy? You know, there's another popular pundit today that people like to listen to, Jordan Peterson. He's a modern, uh, really a popular psychologist. And he was speaking at a Christian university not too long ago, and I found it interesting because he's not a Christian. By anything he said, he has no Christian profession. He appreciates religion more as a crutch, I think, as a psychologist. He thinks, hey, if people believe this, it's good for them. Life is full of catastrophe, so if they could believe in something, it helps them get by each day, that's great. Religion's that. But he was confronted with the idea of the resurrection of Jesus. He wants to make it metaphorical. He wants to make it about the theme of it or the lesson of it. But when he's pressed on the actual resurrection of Christ, the actual bodily resurrection of the person Jesus Christ, he says some interesting things. He says, regarding the resurrection, this may be the most important topic I have ever considered. I hope he knows that's true. But he said, this is probably the most important topic I have ever considered. The sticking point with the atheist community and the Christian community is truly the idea of the bodily resurrection of Christ. Now, there are more sticking points, but that's a big one. That is the big one about Christianity. It's a very rough sticking point. It's something that I wrestle with continually. I don't know what to make of the idea of the physical resurrection. He's smart enough to know that if it's true, everything turns on it. If it's true, what Jesus says is true. And what Jesus says is the Old Testament's true. He believed in the Old Testament. It means the Bible's true. It means the message about our sin is true. It means the only way to be forgiven for our sins is to trust in Christ, who is the Messiah. I mean, everything turns on the physical, bodily resurrection of Christ. And so, Paul, when he goes to speak to the Jews and to anyone else who listen, he takes the Old Testament and says, the Messiah who we need is forecasted in the Old Testament to have to suffer and die, and he will be raised again. Now, if you're like me, my first reaction is, I know where he's forecasted to suffer and die, and I know you all do too. We spent two or three years together talking about it. But where his resurrection comes in, that's a little more difficult to see, and this is what Jesus did in his earthly ministry, help us see that in the Old Testament, and now Paul really brings it to a head. Paul wrote to the Corinthians about Jesus. He was buried, he was raised in the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So he's talking about Jesus' resurrection and saying the Scriptures taught it. Again, he's talking about the Old Testament. Anytime the Scriptures are mentioned in the New Testament, it has to be referring to the Old Testament. So what passages do you think Paul drew from? Well, the first one that he most likely would have drawn from would have been Psalm 16. You remember in Acts chapter 2, Peter uses that psalm and applies it to Christ in his resurrection. The psalm says this, I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You won't let me go into the grave. That's David writing this now. 
We know David went to the grave, though. Continuing, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are the pleasures evermore. So when Peter preaches at Pentecost, he takes that psalm and he says to the crowd, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he died and was buried. We know Psalm 16 is not about David, everybody. It's telling the Jews this who had long thought of it that way. Reprogram your thinking, everybody. This cannot be about David. He's dead in the grave. His body's decayed. It's not him. His tomb is with us to this day, Peter says. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. So Paul knows what Peter says about this passage. He knows Psalm 16 is about the resurrection of Jesus, and now he uses it, no doubt, over these three Sabbath days to show the Jews how it is that the Christ had to be raised again. Peter said, this Jesus God raised up, and that we are all witnesses. Of course, what other passage? No doubt, Isaiah 53 talks about his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, he opened not his mouth, like a lamb is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. And then, Isaiah 53, 9 and 10, They made his grave with the wicked and the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he will see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. He will raise him is what it's saying. After he's gone through this, he will prolong his days. It's another way of saying he will see and live again. This forecasting in Isaiah. You know, there's, one, there's a couple other. I'll just mention one, two that are really um, poignant. I never thought of Jonah as a picture of the resurrection of Christ. I don't know if anyone would have specifically if it were not for Jesus himself letting us know what it means, or at least part of what it means. In Jonah 1.17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Later in Jonah... 2, verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out onto dry land. He was dead in the belly of the fish. That's where he would have died. But instead, he was spit out, and it was the Lord who caused this. So when Jesus is talking to some listeners, he said, after answering their critical questions, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What's the sign of the prophet Jonah? Jesus says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And they all knew what happened next. He was spit out of the fish. He would come out of the grave. So even Jonah, by God's providence, is there for a bit of a a picture of what the work of Christ would be. I have no doubt Paul brings this up. It's from the words of Christ. So over these three Sabbaths, he's drawing their attention to many of the ways in which the Old Testament points to Christ's death, his suffering, and also his resurrection. Jesus himself would have been referred to. In his earthly ministry, multiple times he said it explicitly. In Matthew 16, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. In Matthew 17, 
They were gathered in Galilee, and Jesus said, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. They were greatly distressed. Why were they greatly distressed? Immediately, Jesus would be gone. But also, it didn't strike with what they thought the Messiah was supposed to do. They were wrong, though. I mean, how often are we wrong about something the Scripture says? Uh, I was listening to this uh, little one read a story. In the story, it said, classic story. It was meant to be spiritual, spiritually um, attuned, but it was a mom talking to someone while they're praying. The mom said, don't forget, God helps those who help themselves. How many people grew up thinking that was in the Bible? And there's so many things like that that we just think that are in the Bible. I mean, all these things we're not supposed to do as Christians, like half of them are not in the Bible. Some of the things we're supposed to do we don't realize are in the Bible, right? So it's not hard for us to understand why there'd be such a misunderstanding here. And so Jesus is clearly telling, clearly telling them, and they're greatly distressed. In Matthew 20, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priest. Wait a minute. The Son of Man's supposed to take over the chief priest's spot. We're going to be sitting at your right and left hand, John, and James are thinking. But Jesus is saying that's not what's going to happen. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Wait a minute. That's not what we signed on for, they're thinking. Yet they know in their heart that Jesus is true. He's real. He's right. So their whole world is changing with the realization of what God's Word's really about. It's not just about a sorry little temporal deliverance from this life's problems. It's about eternal salvation, which is way more important. But when you're enraptured with here and now, you don't think oftentimes, and that devil loves that, doesn't want you to think about where you'll spend the vast majority of your existence. It's so short here. But if you just stay focused here, then you'll go right on to hell. That's what the devil likes. You've got to lift your head up, and only the Lord can lift your head up. He's a lifter of heads so you can see the truth of the gospel, lay hold of Christ. And not only does it transform your knowledge about the future and your eternity, your whole life is different with a different perspective. And you can do the things that God's called you to do without the fear that you would have before because you realize what all of existence really is about. This unfolding progression about the Messiah happens in the Old Testament starting in Genesis. It gets clearer and clearer and clearer through the writings and the prophets. And then John the Baptist says, this Jesus is the one, the Lamb of God. And then Jesus says, I am that one. And then he ties it all together in a beautiful thread, a beautiful thread of his covenants, of his kingdom, of his promises, of who he is as Christ. It it unfolds for us in this progression. I like what Michael Chase said about this resurrection feature and how that theme itself starts and grows and finds its fulfillment in Christ. He said, resurrection hope is a frequent subject in the New Testament. For the question of hope about the resurrection in the Old Testament, our attention to progressive revelation can help us rightly identify early texts, like we did here, that were the seeds of this hope planted and then realized ultimately in Christ. Last week, when we looked at the mission to Philippi, I closed with a few words from the Philippian letter to kind of get a feel for the kind of personal relationship Paul must have had. We don't get much of that. It's only 10 verses here in Thessalonica. Yet he had a long-lasting relationship that, that caused him to write two inspired books. I want to just close by reading some of the words that Paul said to the Thessalonians. Pay close attention to this. I know it's the last thing in the sermon, so we're ready to kind of, I know how it is, but I'm sitting where you are at times too. But listen to these words because I think they'll be words you've heard before, but now you've just seen how Thessalonica was evangelized. You just saw how it was planted. You know Paul's care for them. 
the duress they were under, what it caused Jason, how these people were in uproar. Yet there are all these people, devout women who are leaders, devout Greeks who are uh, uh, Christians now, leaders of the women in the culture, and then some of the Jews as well. With all this background in the church now developed, several months later he writes back, listen to what he says. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus. For we know, brothers, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need, say, we need not to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we have among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. See the touch point back to the message, the kernel of the message he gave? To wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And finally, listen to these words, how personal they are and how they connect so well with what we studied. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. May that be said of us, people of the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we are invigorated when we see how you and your providence planted your church in these various places in this first century context. Lord, help us to be wise to extract those timeless principles that we may apply in the ministry that you have made us stewards of here in Overland Park and all the places you would have us to go, where all of our members live. May you utilize them as salt and light and witnesses. I pray, God, that you would give us a deepening care and love for your word, that we also might be described in the way that Paul describes the Thessalonians, that we receive the word of God that we read here in your word and accept it not as the word of man, but what it really is, your word, which is at work in us who believe in you because of your grace. We thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen. Let us together respond by singing a great resurrection hymn. We sing it often at Easter, but the emphasis on the necessity of the Messiah's resurrection prompted me to use this for our response hymn. Verse 1 and verse 2, let's stand and sing 274, Thine be the glory.